A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello fellow time travellers, I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, sign up to my patreon.com site, uh, where from my home in Stirling, I post a new video every week. The site's all about uh, the history that excites, uh, informs and inspires me, uh, how history collides with events in the present day. There are posts about the birth of Britain, about ancient Greece and the Spartans, Viking treasure. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. There's everything and lots more besides. It's the universe and everything that surrounds it. To get your hands on all these exclusive videos, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. The mere fact that it had been attempted caused panic. When news reached London, there was actually a run on the bank. In this podcast, we're calling out the guard as Britain is invaded for the very last time. Europe is in turmoil. Louis XVI and the French aristocracy have found themselves on the sharp end of the guillotine. European royalty is reeling from the horror of it all and running scared as revolution sweeps across France. The British monarchy and others sent forces to try and crush the new republic. Determined to fight back, the French launched an invasion of the British Isles. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last podcast we walked the streets of Glasgow with the mighty tobacco lords as they stamped their mark on history. Where are we this week? Yes, Paul, uh, last week was all about slavery, uh, the triangle of trade and the almost unimaginable riches that were flowing into the British Isles. All of it made on the, on the sweat and, and suffering of, of African people bought and sold. It's not money but ideas at the heart of this week's episode. Revolutionary thinking had swept over the American colonies. That helped in turn to inspire the French Revolution. And now those ideas are heading over the channel 
with heavily armed French soldiers as they launch the last attempted invasion of the British Isles, landing here in Fishguard in Pembrokeshire. This week we're in Fishguard in Pembrokeshire in southwest Wales. It was a place, a destination that I was completely unaware of. You know, having grown up in Scotland and when we got a chance to get away as a family, we normally did it in Scotland or we went to, you know, we had a few trips to the Lake District in Cumbria, but we never got as far as Wales when I was a lad. And so it was an unknown country to me. And I didn't start exploring Wales until I was in my, <laughs> in my mature years. Parts of Wales can literally take your breath away with their beauty, can't they? Yeah, yeah I would say, I mean, I've been all over Wales by now, uh, north and south, east and west, and Pembrokeshire is stunning. You know, Pembrokeshire, it, in the whole of the British Isles, the whole of the British archipelago, Pembrokeshire holds its head up as a contender for most beautiful. Stunning, stunning, and it also feels wonderfully remote. You can get to places where you feel as if you've left the world behind. So it's a very, it's a very beautiful destination. So we're, we're at Fishguard, right out in the southwest. The story that makes Fishguard worthy, in my opinion, of being a, you know, part of the love letter to the British Isles, is the fact that if you were to stop most people in the street, stop a hundred people in the street, and say, when, when, and where was the last invasion of Britain? And they would probably say Hastings if they said anything at all. 1066, Norman Conquest, all of that. And it's fascinating to me that they're wrong. We've previously had a love letter from the Battle of Brunanborough in 937, even before 1066. And that's another name and a place lost and forgotten. To this day, to this day, archaeologists and historians aren't sure where Brunanborough actually happened. But wherever it happened, it was the battle that really, more than any other, created and or solidified the split between North and South. It was the battle that determined that there would be a, a kingdom in the north, smaller and poorer, and a, and a separate kingdom in the south, larger and richer. So Brunanborough laid the foundations for an England and a Scotland all the way back in 937, and it's similarly forgotten. Well, the events of Fishguard in 1797 are similarly lost to most people's memory. It was thrust into the spotlight by the events of the French Revolution. It's romanticised the, the French Revolution, but in amongst much else, it was a time of great violence and much in the way of, of gruesome horror. Uh, the, the, the revolution was unleashed in 1789. King Louis XVI was guillotined, his head separated from his body in the January of 1793. And then his queen, famously, Marie Antoinette, was similarly dispatched just nine months later. The bloodletting of the French Revolution is, is much romanticised, I suppose, and possibly exaggerated, but the facts are that around 40,000 French men and women were done away with. It was an exercise in petty score settling. It was a, an exercise in revenge. It was all of the things that are the inevitable consequence of when the mob takes control, if only briefly, and when they are egged on by the authorities who are happy to see a certain amount of bloodletting it was a terrible time, there's no way of getting away from it. And the violence of it and the fact of regicide and a monarchy being done away with meant that neighbouring monarchies in Europe, people you know, living side by side with France, were terrified about what the consequences might be. There had already been a revolution in America 
the American colonists had thrown off Great Britain. And now here was a French revolution, had thrown off the monarchy in France. And there was lots of anxiety that this was some sort of pandemic of revolution that was just going to spread the length and breadth of the continent. Uh, so steps were taken to try and uh, scotch the, the French revolution, scotch it in the egg, so to speak, because nobody was sure which way it might go, what the overall consequences might be. And so the French Revolution and its aftermath became like a storm. It was like bad weather that just moved back and forth up and down the continent. And steps were taken. In June 1795, the French, which is to say émigré French, those Frenchmen that had fled the revolution, those that wanted to restore the monarchy, uh, sided with, uh, with British troops. And so a combined force of British troops and Frenchmen opposed to the revolution landed at Quiberon on the Brittany coast, on the southern part of the Brittany peninsula, with hopes of crushing the revolution once and for all. But within a month, it had proven to be a disaster. The revolutionary forces were ready for them, intercepted them, and those that had, that had landed, the British and the anti-revolutionary French, were, were captured. And more significantly, vast quantities of equipment were captured arms and uniforms, and many of the would-be invaders' red tunics, you know, the classic red tunics of the British Army, were taken, and the, the French dyed them black, <laughs> just so they could use them again. And they were used to dress 1,400 or so men of La Seconde Légion de France. And uh, given the uniforms that they were soon wearing, these, these black tunics, they became known as La Légion Noire, the Black Legion. So they were dressed in recycled clothes. It had been a serious invasion by Britain. It wasn't half-hearted. No, 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 it wasn't half-hearted at all. And uh, and th 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 there were a lot of sympathies. A lot of sympathy lay with, with the attempt because the, the monarchies of Europe were most dismayed at what had happened in France. And they were particularly concerned that it would catch on, that, it would, that that fire would spread. And so many hands, many forces were keen to see the revolution scotched. But by 1796, the revolutionary France was determined to strike back against Britain, to take the conflict back to Britain. And a, a massive three-pronged invasion was planned. The French had paid attention to the fact that the Irish were potentially ready to rise in rebellion against the British crown themselves. And to take advantage of that, to, to side with the Irish, or the potentially rebellious Irish, a 15,000-strong French force under the command of one General Lazare Hoche boarded ships at Brest uh, in the December of 1796, and they set sail with a view to landing in Ireland. The plan was to land in Bantry Bay in Ireland's southwest, and then push, push towards Britain, push towards London, Wow, they meant business then, with 15,000. Absolutely, but it was a debacle. For a start, the fleet, the, the outgoing fleet, having left France, was, was struck by heavy weather. So it was a bit of an echo of what had happened to the Spanish Armada in the time of Elizabeth I. Terrible weather overtook the French force and they were broken up, scattered in all directions. The, the British Royal Navy knew they were coming, knew they were there. Because of the weather... More than anything else, they weren't able to engage. You know, they weren't able to bring the, the French fleet to battle. But in the end, the weather had done it for them. The storms uh, meant that the French fleet had lost cohesion. 
They lost a dozen ships, they lost thousands of men, drowned or captured. And a second force, part of the same expeditionary force, had left Dunkirk, bound for Newcastle-upon-Tyne, part of the same exercise. Their objective had been to intercept shipping, merchant shipping in the area and, and cause chaos there. But more bad weather, actually in the vicinity of the Netherlands, forced them to return to port. So you've got part of the invasion force that had left uh, Brest making for Ireland, scattered. A second part of the operation had left Dunkirk, similarly broken up by the weather. And so by the February of 1797, there was only one part of it remained. And this was the Black Legion. This was some of these characters wearing the the recycled black-dyed tunics that had been captured in 1795. It's a bizarre story. It's one of those ones that really ought to have been adapted into a movie. They were commanded by an Irish-American general called William Tate. He was the son of Irish parents. His parents had been killed in the American War of Independence, in the American Rebellion. So he had been orphaned on account of that, but had risen risen through the ranks of the American military. So you've got an Irish-American general, William Tate, and he's determined to take his own personal revenge on the British because his parents had died in the American Revolutionary War. So he's got 1,400 men under his command, but they are a desperate bunch. There was a a hard core of maybe 600 trained men, men who had been trained in the military tradition. But the bulk of them, so that's 600 out of 1,400, the the rest were uh, a rabble, literally a rabble of convicts who had been seized from prisons, French prisons, in Brest, in Le Havre, and forced into uniform. You know, guys that had just been hauled out of their cells and dressed as soldiers and then put aboard ships and brought across to fight, so they were hardly a motivated or trained operation. So this command, this 1400 under uh, under William Tate, their their original objective had been to uh, land at Bristol, a key English port, the second city of, of Britain at that time, the second port city of Britain, But no sooner had they left the French mainland than yet again they were taken by the weather. I mean, these are the consequences of trying to launch this kind of operation at that time of year. November, December, into January. It was a potentially disastrous time to be trying to cross the the English Channel with invasion in mind. Uh, So although the objective had been to land the 1,400 men at Bristol and then turn on Wales, they were to sack Bristol and then head for Wales and cause mayhem there. But because of the weather, Tate changed his plans So he abandoned any attempt to get to Bristol and he moved straight for Wales. And so on the morning of the 22nd of February, the locals in Fishguard, were finally at Fishguard in Pembrokeshire, they awoke and opened their curtains, you might say, to find that there were four warships anchored off the coast and they were actually flying British colours. They had travelled under false colours, but those in the know, it was a seagoing population in Fishguard and they could tell by the nature of the rigging on the ships that they weren't British, they were French. So the alarm was raised and they realised that what they were looking out at, these four ships, were an invasion force. It's very important to remember, or, or it's significant to remember, that it was not the first time that the people of South West Wales had been the focus of invaders. That part of Wales had also been the target of Vikings, hundreds of years before, drawn to that part of South West Wales by the city of St David's 
Now, St David's is the smallest city in Britain, built around the cathedral of St David's. And a thousand years ago, at the time of the Viking expansion, it was a target because it was a place of wealth, as, as any of the cathedrals were. You know, there's gold, valuables, books with their expensive coverings of gold and, and precious stones. St David's Cathedral actually sits in a hollow. The architects, the builders of it, had tried to hide it. They had built it in a location that meant you couldn't really see it from the sea. It sort of tucked away in a fold in the landscape, but nonetheless, the Vikings had identified it as a location. St David is the, is the patron saint of Wales, obviously, and he had, he had established a community. It's a very austere, ascetic view of the world. His people, his community, his monks were only allowed to drink water and only allowed to eat bread and salt. But nonetheless, although it was austere and given to a certain kind of poverty, it grew rich from the attention brought to it by the surrounding community. So it had been a target. And so that part of Wales, it was not in any way unused to being a target for invaders. In any event, the French came ashore in 1797 and uh, what they were proposing to do was begin an operation there and push, push across, push inland, push towards the east, push into England and prosecute a full-scale invasion. The locals, uh, having established that they were facing uh, an invasion, they managed to fire a single shot They had a cannon in the town's fort and they fired a single shot towards the French ships. It flew wide, but just the fact that the locals had responded in that way persuaded Tate, the general, to move his flotilla and they got away from Fishguard itself and they landed, they put the men ashore on rocks at, at Caraguastad Point on Pencare Peninsula. Despite the fact that the men were largely a rabble, the ships were new and well equipped, the men were well armed. And so it was, a, it was a potentially dangerous force that came across and made its way towards the outskirts at Fishguard. They were well armed and obviously meant business, but they weren't a huge invasion force, were they? Remember that they, they were supposed to have been part of a three-pronged attack. You know, there was supposed to have been an invasion of Ireland taking advantage of, of rebellious subjects there. They were supposed to have been an invasion or a trouble caused in Newcastle on the East Coast. The fact was that they were all that remained of that original plan. And so the fact was that Tate landed in the vicinity, pushed towards Fishcard, but his men were, were hopeless. They were an ill-disciplined mob. Many of the men that had been pressed into service from the prisons, they simply deserted, they just ran away, or they mutinied, they, they turned on their officers, they raided local houses looking for food, looking for drink, and as it so happened, a Portuguese cargo ship had recently been wrecked in the vicinity and there was lots of brandy in Fishguard, so lots of the French helped themselves to, you know, bootleg brandy. There were local volunteers, there were local militia in the vicinity of Fishguard, local men who turned out under a Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Knox and they deployed to do what they could. They were then backed up by British reservists, others under John Campbell, Lord Codder. Obviously the invaders outnumbered the local force, but the invaders were drunk, they were ill-disciplined and they weren't motivated because most of them had just been forced into the action. And so the whole thing became hopeless on the point of view for anything that William Tate, the commander, had had in mind. Legend has it that a, a local woman named Jemima Nicholas 
captured a dozen French, single-handed, armed only with a pitchfork, backed them, backed them into a barn somewhere and took them prisoner. And there's other folklore that says that the local women, uh, dressed in their traditional garb, which included red cloaks and tall hats, and when the Frenchmen saw them coming, they thought it was the British grenadiers, <laughs> but it was, but it was, it was local Welsh women uh, just coming to see what was happening. But the drunk French thought it was a force of British grenadiers, and that that caused panic among them. The whole thing just descended into something ludicrous. Within 48 hours of coming ashore at Caraguastad Point and moving towards Fishguard, Tate had been forced into an unconditional surrender. His men were rounded up by the much smaller but better motivated and better organised British forces. His men were later used in a prisoner exchange to get British prisoners back from the continent, including men that had been taken after the farcical, as it ended up, invasion at, at Quiberon. But in an echo of what had happened at Whitehaven when John Paul Jones had attempted to uh, cause chaos at the coal port, the mere fact that it had been attempted caused panic. When news reached London, there was actually a run on the bank. The local populace began to panic that there was indeed a full-scale invasion by France. And people with money in the banks in London went into the banks and demanded, they handed over their banknotes and wanted gold in return. Because you know how your bank is, your, your bank note to this day is a promissory note that says something along the lines of, I promise to pay the bearer on demand to the sum of. It's this idea that you can hand over the paper and get gold or silver. Now, that was the case up until that invasion at Fishguard in 1797, but the impact of the run on the bank that was occasioned by that invasion, people demanding gold and silver in return for their banknotes, meant that from that day onwards, banknotes literally weren't worth the paper that they were printed on. The banks had to release further banknotes. It was a kind of a quantitative easing. And it meant that in any event, it was no longer the case that the banknotes in circulation were backed up by gold held in the banks. So that was the end of that notion, it was one of the consequences of that abortive invasion in 1797. Today there's, there's fish guard and lower fish guard, so the, the, the place is kind of split in two. Um, lower fish guard is older, that's the original hamlet from which the, you know, the rest of the town grew over time. Fishguard itself is, is not a Welsh name, it's a corruption of, uh, of the Norse Fisgarder, uh, which is a reference to a place where you could catch fish, like a fish net. It was a place that had seen its share of history, you know, pestered originally by Vikings that had come for St David's, and because it had been a target at various times, there were attempts made to make it more defendable. So there's a, there's a Mott and Bailey castle there, built during the time of the Norman Conquest. And yet, to all intents and purposes, for visitors now, it's, it's quiet and pretty. The, the events in 1797, they're, they're history, but they're, they're lost. The vast majority of people would barely be able to point at Fishguard on a map, would barely be able to say that it was in Wales, far less that it had been the focus of the last serious attempt to invade these islands. If the invasion force had come together, you know, if the force that headed for Newcastle and the force that had made for Bantry Bay and Ireland, if it had all come together, the consequences might have been altogether different. You might have seen a force moving east across Ireland, across Britain, and London itself might have been put under pressure. There's no way of knowing. 
it's a late reminder that the storm of the French Revolution had blown flotsam and jetsam as far as the western seaboard of Britain in the form of Fishguard in Pembrokeshire in southwest Wales. Why do you think history hasn't remembered this invasion very well? These things sound farcical to us. You know, there's there's an element of comedy about them, not least because, as it turns out, nothing truly significant came of those attempts, as was the case with uh, John Paul Jones' activities in Whitehaven. You know, we, we kind of look back on it as a bit of a pantomime. It's all a bit light-hearted, and, and nowadays, you know, American warships land and there's a, a day of, of festivities to remember a kind of a, a kind of a nothing that didn't happen. But events could have unfolded differently. And John Paul Jones' activity in Cumbria at the time of the American Revolutionary War, the American War of Independence, it caused a justified note of panic because it said to the British authorities, the Americans can get here. As it turned out, it was a single lone raider. But that's just the way things turned out. It could have been much more significant and it gave the British authorities a fright. Similarly, the fact that the that French revolutionary forces had got it together to launch a three-pronged attack to England's east coast, to Ireland, to try and take advantage of rebellious spirits there, and to southwest Wales, something so coordinated. It amounted to nothing as things turned out, but the wiser heads, you know, back in London and elsewhere, recognised it for what it had been, which was a reminder that these islands are under threat and time and time again, you know, forces that don't have our best interests at heart have sought to get here and to cause mayhem. And the fact that, that those attempts came to nothing, they're still worthy of being remembered because it's been attempted before and it can be attempted again. The British Isles have been invaded quite a few times down through history. But it hasn't happened much, has it? Well, it is a product of us being the British Isles. You know, that our success has, to a great extent, down through millennia of history, has, has, uh, has rested on the fact that we are a set of islands. And you look at the English Channel on a map and it doesn't look like much, but it has made all the difference. You know, the fact that, as Shakespeare said, you know, we are, you know, we are surrounded, we have a moat. Any other land-based, uh, you know, France, Germany, people just walk in, you know, they can just walk across the border. Uh, you know, from one country to another. We have always had that security of being protected by the sea and that that protection has served as well. And however porous our borders are, nonetheless, we are still protected in a way that nobody else in Europe is. We have been invaded, though. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have. We have The, the borders are porous and people have do come and go. Obviously, 1066, the Normans came, which was a kind of a last hurrah for the Vikings. Uh, that was a, a boardroom takeover in 1066 that meant that, you know, life went on as pretty much as it had before for the English population, but there had been a boardroom takeover and it was, it was French nobility rather than Anglo-Saxon nobility. People have come down through the ages and, you know, some people have come just in hopes of a better life, but some people have come in hopes of conquest. There has been a mix of both, and there's no getting away from the fact that as recently as the turn of the 19th century, you know, in, in 1797, running up to the turn of the 19th century, revolutionary France you know, had it in mind to bring its rebellion, its revolution to our shores. And it was just the weather 
and a combination of circumstances that meant that that didn't happen. But it could have gone the other way. If the winds hadn't blown, if the storms hadn't raged, if those fleets hadn't been scattered, then we might all have been speaking French. Nations throughout history, from the Egyptians and the ancient Greeks to the Romans and Muslim Arabs, have all plagued the world as they traded in slavery. The British Isles grew fat on the colossal profits to be made from slavery, up to its knees in human misery and horror. Many fought to end this abhorrent practice. Amongst them was a tireless MP from Hull, a man determined never to rest until slavery itself had been abolished. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter and please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's love letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and graphics are by Paul Plowman. And a special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.